Well, good morning. It is a sweet privilege uh, to be with you week in and week out as we seek to worship our risen Savior together. Uh, it really is the highlight of my week. Looking forward to coming together and to pray with and to sing with and to set under the word with each of you. Uh, I also pray that it's becoming or it is the highlight of your week. Um, that there would be a longing to gather with God's people. And that you would find your soul both benefiting from as well as helping others benefit from our times together week in and week out. One thing that I pray regularly for our church is just, God, would you allow us to gather together so that we would grow in both our knowledge of you as well as our love for you. And one of the ways that we seek to aim at hitting those goals, God, grow our knowledge of you and our love for you is that we make the centerpiece of even our gathering together the preaching of the Word of God. And we make the preaching of the Word of God the centerpiece, not because the preacher is great, but because we believe that God has chosen to use ordinary, faithful preaching as one of the ways in which He will make Himself known and His ways known. And as long as there's been a people of God, there's also been a people of God who have come together to sit under the preaching of his word. And so this morning, you and I stand in a really long line of Christians all throughout history who have prized the preaching of the word of God, who've prioritized gathering together to sit under the preaching of the word of God, and who by his grace has, have been changed by the preaching of the word of God. And contrary to what I wish, that preaching was sort of one sermon and we're changed. That's not what happens. In fact, one Puritan of old likened preaching to the work of a blacksmith. Not with one strike of the iron does the metal take shape, but with each strike, it begins to take fuller shape. And so that's our, that's our hope, is that with each sermon, we would be made more and more like our God, one degree of glory to another. We would be able to behold him better and better. And that's true for the youngest in the room. It's true for the oldest in the room. And so six-year-olds, you are with us this morning. I just want to remind you, this sermon is not just for old people. This sermon is for the likes of you. And so I pray that you would be changed because God desires you to be changed by the preaching of his word. And if everyone who's older than six, you are old. <laughs> and so we just finished our three-week sermon series, Marriage in High Regard. And so this morning, we're going to jump back into our year-long study through the book of Exodus. And so just to sort of help get our bearings, it's been a few weeks, the first part of the book of Exodus recounted the miraculous story of God delivering his people out of slavery. And he brings them to Mount Sinai. If you remember, one of the things in which Moses continued to say to Pharaoh is he would go and he would speak on behalf of God and he would say, let my people go that they may worship 
me. And so the reason in which they were rescued and redeemed was because they were to be a community that worshiped God alone. And so God brings them to Sinai. The second part of the book would be God then giving the law, giving his law to his people that they might know how to live for his glory. And so God, first part, God bringing them out of slavery. Second part, God giving them the law that they would know how then should they now live. If you remember, if you'll go back, Exodus chapter 19 They come to Mount Sinai and God calls his people to prepare because God is about to do the unfathomable. He's about to meet with his people. Exodus chapter 19, verse four. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There was purpose in God bringing his people out of slavery. It wasn't just to give them a better life. It was to bring them to himself. It was to give them the best life, life with God himself. And so Moses tells the people, and the people say, yes, we will do whatever it takes in order to be ready for God to meet with us. And so they consecrate themselves. They set themselves apart for the Lord was coming to meet with them. And then at the end of Exodus 19, we have this amazing scene that would have been sensory overload for all of us, fire and smoke and thunder. They began began to see God is coming down to meet with us. And more spectacular than what they saw, Exodus chapter 20, God speaks to them. And God speaks the 10 words to them, what we know is the 10 commandments. And it's such an amazingly terrifying an all-inducing and reverential moment that they say, okay, okay, wait, wait. We thought we wanted to speak with God. And if it's going to be like this, Moses, how about you just speak to God for us and then you speak to us for God? And so they long for a mediator. And then we say, we see in Exodus chapter 20, after he's given the 10 commandments through really the end of Exodus chapter 23, the Lord then tells Moses, these are the, this is what it looks like to live out these commandments. It's what many would call the book of the covenant. It's the 10 commandments applied to everyday life. Kevin preached on these chapters, reminding us that we're accountable to God in all of life reminding us that these 10 commandments are given so that we would rightly love God, but these 10 commandments require us to care and love others around us. And that fullness of life is found in obedience to God. And so with that backdrop, we find ourselves on the doorsteps of Exodus chapter 24. What most scholars will say is the most important chapter in the Old Testament that we know little about. Hmm, Christian, how well do you know Exodus chapter 24? 
and to my non-Christian friends who are here, it's okay that you know nothing about Exodus chapter 24. But I have prayed all week that you would come to know the glorious God to whom this chapter is inviting you to belong to. And so let's pray and we'll jump into Exodus 24. Our holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we come to you needy. We come to you asking you to allow us to behold wonderful things in your word, that we would be changed by it, that we would find joy in it. And so would you continue to shape us as individuals, shape us as families, shape us as a church by your word. And so for that to happen, I am aware that your spirit needs to do much with the little bit that I have. And so would you allow the sermon that is heard to be far more effective than the one that is preached? And I beg you to do it, not so that people would think, great preacher, great sermon, but they would be in awe of a great God for your glory, and for our good. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you've not opened your Bible, I would invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus, the second book of the Bible. So it will be on the left side. 24 will be the large number in the top corners of the chapter. In Exodus chapter 24 this morning, we will behold God's gracious confirmation of his covenant. God's gracious confirmation of his covenant. That's the main point of the chapter. And as such, I pray that that's the main point of this sermon. And I believe there are three scenes that will help walk us through this sermon. And those three scenes will serve as sort of the points, less of a point like I should do this or but more of it's helping us uh, understand where the action is taking place. And I think by, by knowing where the action is taking place, we may recall what actions took place. So, first scene. We find ourselves at the foot of the mountain. At the foot of the mountain, and we see this in verses 3 through 8. The passage that you just heard Laura read. I'll circle around to verses 1 and 2 because that connects with verse 9. And when you read Exodus chapter 24, one of the challenges is that it's not always easy to know. So is Moses up the mountain or is he down the mountain? Here, all of the people are at the foot of the mountain. And verse 3 helps us. It helps us to know that after receiving the law of the covenant, right? So he's, God has given what? He's given the 10 words, the 10 commandments, and then he's given the 10 commandments applied to all of life. And that, the, the commandments applied to all of life, known as the book of the covenant. Well, who heard that? It wasn't the people, it was just Moses. And so now Moses comes back, verse three tells us, and he recounted to the people all of the words of the Lord, the 10 words and all of the ordinances, the book of the covenant, the words, and the ordinances. If you were to go to Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, before he gives the Ten Commandments, and God spoke all these words. And if you were to go to Exodus chapter 21, verse 1, before he begins to unpack all of the book of the covenant, these are the laws, the ordinances that are set, that you were to set before them. 
And so this would have been the first time that the people had heard the commandments attached to the book of the covenant. And after hearing it, what do they do? Verse 3 tells us, with one voice, they say, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. And I listen to that, and I think it seems rather audacious, don't you think? That God has just given 10 words and a book of laws that essentially require perfect obedience. And the people then say, yep, we'll do it. Sign us up. And yet there's a part of me that if I'm in their shoes, I can't imagine that there would be any other response that would be appropriate. Whether or not they were able to keep God's law, they realized that keeping God's law was the best way for them to live. No negotiations were made. And it was only right for this kind of God to set the terms for this relationship. And not only in verse 3 do we see that the words are made clear and the commandments and the ordinances are made clear, but verse 4 we find Moses then wrote down all the words of the Lord. And it's at this point that we can begin to see a ceremony of sorts that's taking shape. This covenant that God has made with his people is beginning to be formally ratified or formally confirmed. God speaks to Moses, who then goes and speaks to the people, who then respond back to what God has said. You begin to see this formal relationship beginning to emerge. And it really stems back, Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, Israel's labor has just been uh, increased. Pharaoh has decided to make their labor more burdensome. In Exodus chapter 6, God promises something. In verse 2, God spoke further to Moses and says, I am the Lord God. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because of the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. And so the Lord even here is referencing, there is this relationship, there's this promise that he's made with a people that he will be something to them, and they will be something to him. Verse 6, Therefore say to the sons of Israel, those that were under heavy labor and in slavery, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land which I swore to your forefathers. And so what we see then is this relationship that God has established. The people had no clue what that relationship was going to look like. On what basis would 
would they be able to enter into this relationship? And what did it mean for God to be their God? And that's what begins to take place here. And as an aside, this verse in verse four, as Moses sits down to write the words of the Lord, it gives us a window into the means by which God has providentially, sovereignly preserved his word for his people. Men inspired by God's Holy Spirit, recording his words that would be kept for all time. Second Timothy chapter three, all scripture is breathed out by God. And so that means when you read the word of God or you hear the word of God preached, you are hearing the voice of God addressing us by his glory and by his grace. And so really, it's this, it's this book. It's what Moses is writing down, the book of the the 10 words and the book of the ordinances that would be the basis, it would be the framework for this covenant that's being entered into. It was written down because it would be critical for them to remember. It would be crucial for them to review it and to study it and to live according to it. This book would bind God to his people and his people to their God. But not just the book. Verse 4. After Moses writes down all the words, he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. You remember at the end of Exodus chapter 20, God gives the Ten Commandments, and then he gives these laws about, or these instructions about how to build an altar. And he's like, I don't want any of the stones to be cut. I want them to be natural. I don't want the altar that is meant to be a sacrifice, that's meant to be the basis of sacrifice, to not draw attention to anyone else but me. And don't even make steps high because his priests walk up it. You remember, their nakedness would be exposed. And so, no, 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 we don't, we don't do that. The arrangements of the pillars. You have one altar, stones stacked up in the middle. And then an arrangement of pillars. It would have mimicked the arrangement of the people who were at the foot of this mountain. The altar that was there would have represented the presence of God. The pillars that were put up would have represented each of the tribes. It would represent the people of God. And now you begin to see the ceremony is becoming more and more formal. You have the basis of this ceremony, God's word, the book. And now you have the parties involved in this ceremony. God is represented by the altar. His people is represented by the pillars. And there was no signing of a dotted line, but rather there was the sealing of this covenant with blood. The blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant would help. And it would provide the threat of divine judgment for anyone who broke God's law. And so the fact that there was blood here on this day when this covenant is being formally entered into, it would have reminded everyone that if, if I break my end of the bargain, then what is required of me is my blood. 
Blood has to be shed in order for this relationship to be had. That's what happens when you have a sinful people and a holy God. It takes us back to Genesis chapter 15. Moses is getting, uh, not Moses, Abraham is going to sleep. And he's going to sleep. He sees animals that he sacrificed and they're all split in half on the ground. And a smoking pot and a blazing torch passes through the animals. And we don't understand it. Seems pretty uh, like an interesting dream. And Abraham gets it. The smoke and the fire represented God himself. And you think, wait, smoke and fire the people as they gathered at the foot of this mountain and God spoke to them, how did he reveal himself visibly? Smoke and fire. The same God who when the Ten Commandments are given appears in smoke and fire passes through in this moment with Abraham the halves of the animals. Smoke and fire with this declaration God says, I will give you land and offspring. I will give you dominion and dynasty. I will give you possession and people. And Genesis chapter 15 tells us that that's all. Uh, Abraham sees this, this scene taking place. He hears God promise things and Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God declares, I will be faithful to you, and if I'm not faithful to you, then what has happened to these animals, may it happen to me. God says, if I don't follow through on my part of the covenant, then I'll just cease to exist. So Moses sends young men. They're no priests yet. And the young men go and they secure a sacrifice. They make the sacrifice and they make offerings unto the Lord. And these, these young men would have been acutely aware that the reason that they're even, the reason that there's even a people of God, the reason that they even exist was owing to the blood of the Passover lamb. They would have known that. And so what does Moses do once these sacrifices are made? Well, the burnt offerings, they were literally just burned all the way to the ground, just incinerated. But the other offerings, they would be, uh, the meat would be cooked. And it would be provisioned for, for those that were either making the covenant or parties of the covenant. But before the meat could be cooked, the blood had to be drained. And so Moses takes all the blood of these animals and he puts them, half of it, in a basin, and half of it he sprinkles onto the altar. Again, the altar that represents the presence of God. The altar represented the presence of God, and it's God who needs to be appeased. Why sprinkle blood on the altar? Because God needs to be appeased. Blood is shed in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament not to remove guilt, just something that's killed in blood and taking blood and throwing it on me, that doesn't remove guilt. No, blood is shed because it appeases the righteous anger and the wrath of God that burns against sin. The only thing 
that satisfies God's white-hot wrath against sin. Their sin, our sin, is the blood of an innocent one. And the Bible calls this propitiation. God's wrath is satisfied. And if the wrath is satisfied, then his anger no longer rests on the one who was guilty. His wrath is satisfied. His anger no longer rests here because it's rest on a substitute, an innocent one. And so atonement, sacrifice, before it's ever merely about sin, it's first and foremost about God. So the blood then is the basis of this covenant. How will these parties be in covenant with one another? On the basis of blood. And so blood is sprinkled on the altar. Verse 7 then, Moses takes the book of the covenant and he reads it all. So he takes the book that he written, that he has, he take the, takes the words that he's written down, the Ten Commandments, the book of the, the covenant, and he begins to read it. And the people, once again, knowing that the covenant they are entering into, they agree to bind themselves to this book. So they're binding themselves on the basis of the book, and they're binding themselves on the basis of blood. The blood of the animals. So Moses, in verse 8, takes the blood and begins to sprinkle blood all over the people. The author of Hebrews makes this a little bit more clear to us. Hebrews chapter 9, therefore, beginning in verse 18, Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses, he read the commandments and the, and the book of the covenant. To all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And so just imagine, use your sanctified imaginations. Imagine the moment. You're standing there at the foot of the mountain. Everything that you've just seen, in addition to the ways in which the Lord had moved miraculously to bring you and your loved ones out of slavery, to bring you to this mountain, to then meet with you, and to establish the terms of this relationship that he would enter in with you. And there's blood all over the altar. And then Moses begins to take blood and he begins to sprinkle it either on the people or on leaders of each tribe or the elders, some representative of the people, if not all of the people. I mean, I, I think about this. Not a conversation is happening anywhere else. Everyone is riveted. Such a solemn moment. This blood that satisfies God is applied to the people. Exodus chapter 6. They are being set apart as a holy nation, a kingdom of priests unto the Lord.
And so not only is blood one of the basis for this covenant relationship that God will have with his people, the blood is also showing them that there is a way for them to be made right with God even in their failures. The bloody altar is a picture of forgiveness of sins. J. Alec Matir says, God knows that the people are professing beyond their strength to obey. So in great love, God says, I will make provision for them. The same blood which has made peace with God is how the people will keep peace with God. The blood is applied as they walk in obedience. It's applied as they stumble in disobedience. And with that, the first scene, the bottom of the mountain, comes to a close. Brings us to scene number two. Midway up the mountain. Probably not the most creative of sermon points. Midway up the mountain. We really, if you were to look back, Exodus 24, verse 1, and he, being God, said to Moses, come up to the Lord. And he says, and don't just come by yourself, bring 73 others with you. Verse 2, they will all worship at a distance, but Moses, I want you to come up nearer. The 70 elders there presumably are those that were chosen from Moses' father-in-law's advice back in Exodus chapter 18. Those who would help carry the load and bear the burden among the people of God. This episode is what one scholar calls a scene of peaceful majesty and bright grandeur. And in fact, it's one of the most, uh, most surprising scenes in the whole Bible. And it's surprising because God is calling people up to come near to him. And that's what we see, verses 9 and 10. They come up the mountain, 74 of them, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, so clear as the sky itself. It's most surprising because this kind of scene meant if people looked upon God, they would die. Unable to take in his holiness. And all of this happens after the covenant has been confirmed. I'm even thinking possibly these were the ones who were most covered in blood. And they make their way up the mountain. I'm just wondering, how do you come back and talk to your friends about this? Uh, you'll never guess what happened. We went up the mountain, and we get there, and we see God. And what's interesting is what's described in their vision of God is not God himself. It's everything else surrounding God. 
particularly that which is under his feet. It's as if they behold some form of God, and yet their gaze never lifts above what's below his feet. And what they see is stunning, and it defies description. But because words are all we have, this is what we have. There appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. This pavement of blue sapphire, clear, no imperfection of any kind, as glorious as you can imagine, and then some. And if you were to read the book of Ezekiel, and if we were to flip to the book of Revelation, we would find that similar descriptions are given. This sapphire blue, clear, symbolizing the vast rule of God over and under the heavens. And you say, wait a minute, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, I thought that if anyone looked upon the Lord, they would die. And again, in some way, God is revealing a portion of himself, giving insight into his glory in a way that people can handle apart from gazing directly at him. And verse 11 tells us, it's sort of, there's this holding of our breath. Wait, they saw God? We're thinking what's going to come next is that the Lord killed them in verse 11. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. But rather they saw God and they ate and drank. It was God's intention not to bring them midway up the mountain in order to slay them. It was God's intention to bring them midway up the mountain in order to fellowship with them. And the Bible shows us this theme of eating and drinking with God. It runs all the way through the scriptures. In fact, the Bible describes our relationship with God often as sharing a meal with him. The fellowship of eating and drinking, it's the confirmation of the covenant. How how do we know that we're good? How do we know that this relationship is, is established? Well, the way that we... The way that we know that there's a relationship here is that we sit down together and we share a meal. So it's the confirmation of the covenant. But it's not just the confirmation of the covenant, it's the, it's the culmination of the covenant. The reason that you're in covenant is so that you get the joyous experience of being in relationship with one another. And it's the celebration of the covenant. No one sat down with drudge eating this meal. Wasn't one of the awkward meals, why are you here, is fork clanging on the plate. No, this was a joyful celebration, confirming the covenant, celebrating the covenant, culminating the covenant. What a sweet picture of intimacy and friendship between God and his people. Christian, The best news of your salvation is that this is available to you. You get God. It it will not get any better today. (laughs) At this point, the rest of your day is going downhill from here. 
not because the rest of your day is going to be terrible, but because the rest of your day can't be better than the promise that because of the work of this covenant relationship, you get your God. And he, he gets you. And where your grasp is slippery day in and day out, his is secure. You get your God. The covenant is sealed with this meal because the covenant brings us into the family of God. We slide our knees up under his table. We sit down at his table as his children and we eat a meal and it symbolizes the sweetness of our union, the enjoyment of one another. The covenant is a relationship that's meant for relationship. It's this special relationship with God designed to save us out of the world and into his family. And so praise be to God, there is forgiveness of sins. But don't let your enjoyment of your God stop at he forgives you. No, let the forgiveness usher you in to, the, to his presence like he longs to be with you. He longs to be with you. Imagine what what it must have been like to have been one of the 74. What a display of grace and mercy by allowing these that are undeserving to fellowship, to eat, and to drink with God himself. And this just shows us God is passionate about dwelling and abiding with his people and for his people beholding his glory The covenant is confirmed, and then communion with the Lord happens. It is vital that we don't mix up that order. The covenant is confirmed, and communion happens. And perhaps you're here, and you're not a Christian, and you're just thinking, I don't sense any bit of communion. Or perhaps you're here, and you think you're a Christian. And you're just saying, I don't sense any sweetness in communion. And truth be told, I don't know if I ever have. If that's you, I just, want, I just want to save you from a life of frustrating futility. You seeking to climb the mountain in order to enjoy God, all the while having never been made right with God at the bottom of the mountain. The Christian faith is not about, let's see what we can do in order to try to please this God. No, the Christian faith is we get the privilege of enjoying this God on the basis of the work of one who did what we couldn't do to make us right with God. Friends, you're free. You're free from trying to earn your way before a God whose standard is so perfectly holy that you don't stand a chance. Like you're free from that. What a heavy burden to bear day in and day out, thinking that somehow you can be made right with God with your performance. Exodus 24 is just showing us. It's putting on display. There's nothing. There is nothing that God's people did. They were led out of a condition, not owing to themselves, but by God. They were brought to a mountain 
They didn't work their way up the mountain. God came down the mountain to be with them. And then even this relationship, God is providing everything in order for them to be in right relationship with God. And so why in the world would we spend so much time at the bottom of the mountain and midway up the mountain in this sermon? Because it was stunningly glorious news to God's people in that day as well as God's people today. Like Exodus 24 is showing us in Old Testament terms what it looks like to have right relationship with God. You see, like God's people then, we too live in the presence of a holy God who calls us to worship him. And like God's people then, we too are obligated to keep all of that law if we're ever going to have right standing with him. And like God's people then, we can't keep all of God's law perfectly. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, it's important for you to know that because of your sin and because of what you can't do that God requires you to do, you can't be in right relationship with him. You can't go up the mountain to enjoy communion and fellowship with him. And that's not just kind of sad for this sermon that really is devastating for true joy in this life and eternal life with this God. And if you're hoping that just whenever you breathe your last, that sort of that's it, I'm sorry, but you're wrong even in your hopes. You will spend forever in the presence either of this God's eternal bliss and joy or enduring his wrath forever. And so it just doesn't go away once this life ends. In fact, that's when all of it will be made so clear and real to us. But like God's people then, you too this morning can have a right relationship with God on the basis of blood. I mean, the, the point of all of the Old Testament sacrifice was to point us to this one who would come, whose blood would be more effective than the, bloods of anim, uh, the blood of animals. It, it, it was pointing us to the blood of Jesus, God's very own son. In fact, one who would be greater even than Moses. And so anytime the New Testament talks about Jesus, it often talks about him in, in relation to the saving work of his blood. Romans chapter 3, verse 25, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Romans chapter 5, verse 9, we have now been justified by his blood. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 2.13, you have been brought near to God through the blood of Christ. Colossians chapter 1, God was and is making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. It is the blood of Christ and the blood of Christ alone that can justify one, that can redeem one, that can reconcile one, that can forgive one. Your only hope this morning is to pass under the blood, to trust in the work of Christ, all of this, all of this is pointing to the Son of God himself. That's what the author of Hebrews makes clear again and again, particularly in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. 
But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having attained eternal redemption. There comes a moment where Moses says, and this is the blood that serves as the basis of this covenant for you. And then Jesus, this one who's promised, this one who the the Old Testament's looking forward to, the New Testament is looking at or back to, And we think about what Jesus says, and Jesus never at any point says, hey, there's hope somewhere out there based on a blood in order for you to be in covenant, right relationship with God. In fact, Jesus, at the end of his life, Matthew chapter 26, he looks at his disciples and he says, this is the blood of my covenant. This is my blood for my covenant which has been poured out for you. Moses can't say, this is my blood. Only Jesus, the greater Moses, can say, my blood does a work for you. The blood of animals can't forgive sin and cleanse the conscience, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 tells us. And yet Jesus looks his disciples in his eyes and he says, but my blood can This is my blood, which can forgive your sins and clean your conscience. That's why in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, the author writes, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us, through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere faith. Why? How in the world can we draw near to this holy God? Because we have confidence because of the work of the blood of Jesus. Our conscience have been sprinkled clean. And so if you're looking for a moment to sing and shout this morning, we've arrived at it. Though the fight rages on with sin, in Christ you are free from guilt and the guilty conscience because of the effect of the blood of Christ. Once for all, it cannot be undone. Guilt may dog you apart from Christ, but in Christ the wrath of God is satisfied because of Jesus' once for all sacrifice and therefore your conscience is now sprinkled clean. You no longer have to fear future wrath. And all, all whose conscience are clean because of the blood of Jesus, one day they will behold his face. People midway up the mountain, they got to see what was underneath his feet. Later on in Exodus 34, Moses will see God's back. But because of Christ, you and I, all who turn from sin and trust in him, will one day gaze upon the face of God himself. And we shall eat and drink with him in the greater marriage supper of the Lamb. That is good news, friends. The invitation to that feast, God is still handing out this morning. 
he is going to throw the last banquet and the longest banquet of all. And even the preaching of this sermon is a gracious invitation that God would hand to you if you've not turned from your sin and trust in the work of Jesus to be made right with him. The way to RSVP for that banquet is to turn from sin and trust in his work today. And I say, that's all you do. It will be the most costly thing that you do because it affects everything. But it would be the joy of any member of this church to talk to you about what that means. And we as a church would love to celebrate with you if you indeed cross over from death to life because of faith in the blood of Jesus. And praise be to God that this story of the Christian faith doesn't end with a bloodied cross and a dead Savior. <laughs> no, the bloodied cross gives way to an empty tomb because this God lives. He lives. And that brings us to our last scene. Creatively called Higher Up the Mountain. Higher up the mountain. And it really is only after a scene like this has taken place that the rest of Exodus 24 can unfold. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there. And I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandments, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua, his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders, he said, wait here. And he puts Aaron and her in places of leadership. And then verse 15, Moses goes up the mountain and the cloud covers the mountain. And it's this glorious sight, verse 16, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the glory covered it, or the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And so the Lord summons Moses to go up, and all of this is taking place. There's, there's things that are happening. Moses apparently thinks he's going to be there for a while, and so he puts leadership in place for the people. And then from the people's perspective, they are able to look and behold and, and they see something that's, that's pretty stunning. It's like this consuming fire on top of the mountain. And then Moses goes up into that cloud for 40 days and 40 nights. What's going on here? Well, the cloud there and the focus of the cloud is connected to the glory of the Lord. The cloud is this visible manifestation. It's this visible, like, okay, we say glory of the Lord. What's that look like? Well, in this moment, the cloud comes down, and the cloud is meant to be this visible representation of God's glory and of his presence. It's revealing God and his glory in the form of a cloud. It's this visible display of his weightiness and his majesty and his worth and his beauty and it's his splendor. And the text tells us that Moses enters into that for 40 days and 40 nights. Why 40 days and 40 nights? 
Well, don't miss what the New Testament authors are doing. The New Testament authors, authors if you read Matthew chapter 4, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 4, you know what they tell you? They tell you that Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan and he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. What the New Testament authors are making clear is that Jesus is the new and better and true Moses. He's the better mediator. That's what the author of Hebrews will tell us. Jesus is the mediator for his people. He's tested in the wilderness. And so what's the point of all of this? The point is that the presence of God is the central reality and the central blessing throughout the whole book of Exodus. And Moses is representing the mediator. The cloud represents the glory. And if all you have is a mediator, you need the glory of God. You need communion with God. Without communion with God, you don't have fellowship with God. Without the presence of God, you don't have the favor of God. Without meeting with God, and, and nothing else matters. And so Moses goes up to receive the tablets and the instruction. And beginning next week, we're going to see the instructions that he receives. What's it look like for the tabernacle to be built? And all of this is just preparing us for how the book of Exodus ends. I won't unpack it too much, but the tabernacle is complete and the glory of the Lord falls upon the tabernacle and dwells there with the people. And this book began with the people that were in slavery, without a leader, without a mediator. And it ends with a faithful mediator who stands between the presence of God and the people. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there on this day? In fact, you might even find yourself envying Moses because you've never had an experience that looks anything like this. But if you are a Christian, I just want you to hear me say this. That is emphatically not true. If you're a Christian this morning, you've had an experience that far exceeds even what Moses saw. You see, this, this visible manifestation of God and, and every other manifestation of God throughout the Old Testament is temporary. It's anticipating the better, the one to come from heaven, the person of Jesus. And so Christian, the gaze that you have received by Christ through his spirit, through a proclamation of the gospel is far more extraordinary and spectacular even than what Moses saw on this day. The supreme instance of God being revealed is Christ. God makes himself known supremely in Christ. What we're studying in Exodus is God coming down to reveal his glory in a tabernacle. That anticipates Jesus coming down to reveal the glory of God as he tabernacles among us. And so to behold God's glory today, we must see Christ. We must look unto Christ, church, uniquely God's glory is revealed in Christ. Fully, it's revealed in his suffering and in his death and in his resurrection. So if you are a Christian, your experience of beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ 
and him crucified and resurrected, that greatly exceeds Moses' experience at Mount Sinai. You have it better than Moses because you're not looking at a bright cloud. No, you have it better than Moses because you behold the glory of God in the face of Christ as he suffers and dies and triumphs. This is what the author of Hebrews tells us. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And so to draw near with him is this promise that we will remain with him. The only way to draw near is by faith in the sacrifice of his son. Those of us who once were numbered among those who rejected his glory and sought our own, we can come to know the loving forgiveness of this God. Be seated at his table. Not having to look at a cloud, but looking at the face of God in and through the glory of Christ as he suffers and dies and raises from the dead. And because of this saving work, when we breathe our last, we will be ushered into heavenly glory where we will see his glorious face. <laughs> Praise be to this unparalleled God for his breathtaking grace that he would receive the likes of you and me into relationship, into covenant. He was faithful to do it then, and he's faithful to do it today. Let's pray. Our holy God, we ask you that in great mercy you would meet with us. Allow the preaching to grow our love for you and our knowledge for you. Show us how we ought to respond. And so in this moment of silence, by your spirit, show us action. Call us to walk in obedience in Jesus' name.